ready to explore the extraordinary world of tech. Welcome to the XTech Podcast, where we connect you with the sharpest minds and leading voices in the global tech community. Join us as we cut through the complexity to give you a clear picture of the ideas, innovations, and insight that are shaping our future. Hello and welcome to XTech. I'm Debbie Forster, MBE. I'm the CEO at Tech Talent Charter and an advocate and campaigner for diversity, inclusion, and innovation in the tech industry. I'm delighted to be working with Fox Agency as the host of the all-new XTech podcast and as a curator for the XTech community. So today I'm joined by Bill Schmorzo. He is the Customer Data Innovation Lead from Dell. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Debbie, for having me. So, Bill, one of the things I love to do is, you know, for our listeners, it's fascinating because we get to tech by different routes, many of us. Some of us were born techies, others find our way by, by more roundabout wet methods. So could you tell me, you know, what was your path into tech? How did you find yourself here today? So, Debbie, I would say I'm one of those people who was born tech, but then moved out of tech. Oh, you're an escapee and a returner. I'm an escapee, yeah. So, I mean, I've always been a tech person. I've always been interested in data, especially analytics. I got started in analytics when I was very young. I used to play a game called Stratomatic Baseball, which was all about analytics and kind of the forerunner to what we call, you know, sabermetrics or money ball sort of stuff. And I've always been in the area of data and analytics. I've always been intrigued by what we can do from the insights buried in the data to help make better decisions. I think what's happened over the last probably 10 years, Debbie, is my transition from a technologist to an economist and understanding how we as organizations and society look first and foremost, how do we create value and how do we define value creation effectiveness? And then my technology background, especially around data and analytics, has a frame around which we can now have a conversation. So did you go straight into the field, pounding away at keyboards, or or what what else happened along the way? Yeah, I, I got started. I mean, I got my undergrad degrees were in math, computer science, and business administration. I got my MBA in information systems. Went from there to Arthur Anderson, where I was, you know, coding mostly database routines. I built a, um, a database I.O. module for our, our projects that we would use to optimize how we were querying databases to pull data off. So I started with tech, been with tech, and more importantly, I've been with data. Because for the longest time, let's be honest, Debbie, data wasn't very cool. <laughs> now, Bill, I wasn't going to be the person to break that to you. But yeah, <laughs> I, it, it wouldn't have been the best opening line in past no. times. Now, nowadays, it's hot. But back in the day, not so much. Yeah, my kids think I'm cool now. But for the longest time, I was just, you know, data was the byproduct of all the operational systems. Everybody was concerned with ERP and operational systems. And, and you know, we've got to dashboards and reports that basically told us how the operational systems were doing. But we really weren't doing much in the area of really analytics. And so, yeah, I was an outcast. <laughs> but one of the things I was interested in when I was looking across your career is... Rather than just doing, you've also been writing books along the way. So so how did that start happening? I've always been compelled to share what I've learned. It goes back to the influence my mom had on me. And I've been very fortunate, very blessed in my life to have been many different situations. I call them Forrest Gump moments. 
Right place, right time. Not because I'm smart or tall or good looking or from Iowa. Sometimes in life, you just get lucky. And I've had a lot of lucky moments where I was right place, right time. So I've always felt this need to share what I've learned. So started off by writing white papers for organizations, teaching. I wanted, I like to teach. I taught at the Data World Institute for a long time. And that eventually evolved into writing a book. And, and actually, the story behind the book was when I was at Dell, our vice president of marketing, her name was Barb Robidoux knew that I was writing lots of blogs about big data because big data had just kind of burst on the scene and I had a data background, so I was talking about it. And she read all my blogs. She was a big supporter. And she says, Schmars, you got to write a book. Come on, dude. You got all this content. Write a book. So she was really the motivation for writing my first book. And then the book led to some more teaching opportunities, especially at University of San Francisco, where I met Muwafa Sadawe, who was a professor there. And he had me team teach with him, which ended up me being more teaching. And so it all just kind of just kind of cascaded around this idea that I'm in these situations. I'm working with some of the best customers in the world who have all these great ideas. What am I doing? to take what they're teaching me and bringing that out to the rest of the world. And I think that's what distinguishes your books and your role, because quite often if people are going from, from doing the, the white papers into books, they're moving more into academia, right? And so it's clever people talking to clever people about how clever they are. Your books have a very different vibe in that respect. This is really how-to approaches on things, isn't it? Yeah, they really are how-to books, because for most of my life, I have been on the consulting side of the shop. So I've been working with customers trying to figure out how do we develop a data strategy? How do we build an architecture that supports our ability to get at data? What about data management? What about data governance? What All these sort of things. And so as a consultant working with these customers, I had to do this stuff. So everything that's in my books, everything, are things that I have done personally with customers. And again, it wouldn't be very fun if I was doing them by myself. But I, again, I've had this opportunity to work with some really intelligent, bright, forward-thinking customers, not always large customers. Some of my best and most innovative customers have been very small companies who really are trying to do things differently. So yeah, it's a how-to book. You do this, you do this, lots of design templates, how you do things. I share the design templates freely because I find that the more I share, the more I get back. People try them and say, hey, Schmars, I tried this. It didn't work very well. Here's what I would suggest. And it constantly evolves and gets better. So more and more conversations rather than just you spouting out information, much more cyclical in that respect. Yeah, actually, I'm I'm really not that smart. What I think I'm good at doing is listening and integrating and extrapolating, hearing what people are saying. If I hear three or four people say the same thing, I was like, that's got to be more than coincidence. And then how do I solve that problem? So a process, a methodology, a framework I've written. Somebody called me and you're like, I'm Mr. Framework. I, yeah, it is. I have lots of frameworks that I use because that's how we can help people become more effective at leveraging data and analytics. And frameworks are powerful because it's not answers. Frameworks are adaptable. It's input and output that become more valuable. That is a marvelous point, Debbie. It's not a checklist. It's not railroad tracks. It's guardrails. And we're going to let people bounce between those. But what works for one customer in the same insurance industry as customer number two may not work. Every company is different. I always like when companies says, well, you, 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 know, you work with insurance companies. Tell us what we need. I'm like, no. Every company is different. You all have a different culture. You all have different values. You all have different ways you create value for your customers. There is no cookie cutter. So the framework has provided sort of these guidelines that people can, can explore and learn within those guidelines what's most relevant to them. And so for the audience, I think when we're looking and growing people within our teams or looking to get people in teams, this is what we're looking for. The people who want to develop or work within frameworks, don't want an answer, not our tick box people, not how do I fit it into my spreadsheet and my set formula, but really looking at that 
that human centric and it's it's business problems isn't it it's not business is here to serve tech it's very much the other way around Bingo. And I think one of the reasons, Debbie, that I've gotten so much in economics the last decade is at the end of the day, it's all about how do we create value, right? What are we doing with tech, data analytics, blockchain, quantum computing, pick your favorite shiny silvery thing right now, right? It's how do we create value from that? And if we don't, as organizations, understand how we create value, who our stakeholders are, how do they define value creation? What are the KPIs and metrics they're going to use to measure effectiveness? If you don't know that to start with, then you've got a really hard time. I'm going to say a really low probability of success by just throwing technology at problems. Yeah. And that's what happens. The people that don't have it, it is about just give me that shiny thing and I'm going to fling it at the wall at the problem and hope something sticks. And things stick, but it's not what we want sticking to that wall. So let me give you a little... A little story. So we've been running a bunch of research projects. So I've been doing for years, but we formalized it in the last year and a half, looking at a customer's journey from business need to business outcome using data and analytics. And there's a there's a journey map we've created, kind of a design thinking kind of concept of what people go through, the, the outcomes they seek to go along that process. 90% of the people we talk to, when we ask them, well, where's the biggest problem on this? Isn't at the end of the journey, it's at the beginning. We poorly set up where we're going to go. We don't know exactly what we're trying to do. We don't know how we're going to measure success. We don't know enough about our stakeholders. We don't know how they're... It's all the stuff up front that has very little to do with technology and everything to do with customers, to do with, with culture, and to do with economics. And if you if you frame that up, then everything else falls in place. But we, like you said... We fall and we get infatuated with, you know, like a neural network. Wow, look what I can do with a neural network, like chat GPT. I can ask it a question and it gives me an answer back. Wow, it's really cool. If I had a pound for every time somebody's come to me and said, I need a fill in blank, yes. an app, a neural network, I, you know, and you ask them why, what do you want to do? I don't know. I just, I just know we need one. The boss says we didn't, we've got to get one. That, well, you know, depending on which side of the transaction on, that's a good way to waste money or make money. I'm not sure. Which. <laughs> so that gold thread through what you've been doing is data. Let's unpack one of these big shiny things that people are playing with. So can't swing a cat without hitting something about big data. What I'd love to know, it's clearly here to stay. Can you unpack what we mean by big data? Then walk me through what you find most frustrating, most exciting. So let, let's let's unpack one of these shiny things that people are throwing about right now. That's a good one. So first off, big data is not about volume. It's about granularity. So we've always had data, but we've always had data at this aggregated level. You know, sales within a store over the last week or, um, you know, number of incidents by carrier over the last month. We've always had data. What big data about is not about volume, it's about granularity. I can get down to individual data usage patterns. And from those individual data usage patterns, I can create and identify their predicted behavioral and performance propensities. This is the concept I call nanoeconomics, right? You got macroeconomics, you got micro. Big data introduces this concept of nanoeconomics, where I can understand at an individual level, whether it's a human, a customer, a doctor, a nurse, a patient, or a device, a wind turbine, a chiller, a, you know, a compressor, whatever it might be, I can start capturing data at that individual granular level to start understanding their predicted behavioral and performance propensities. That's what big data is about. And that's why it's so much more powerful and scary than just regular data, because I can get down to the individual level. We are, one of my sons said, Dad, you're big brother. And I said, yeah, I kind of am. 
it's not what I wanted to be, but okay. But I, but I can get down to that level. And so what excites me, Debbie, about this is we can develop programs, policies, procedures, and products that deliver individualized benefits. We could, for example, hospitals could create individualized wellness curriculums just for you. Universities and colleges and high schools could create curriculums just for individual students, knowing their predicted behavioral performance propensities and such. We can get down to that granular level to drive precision decisions that we could actually, as a society, do more with less because we have so much waste in what we do today. We would get down to that granular level and it has impact across education and housing and healthcare and Every, every part of society could benefit from this concept of, you know, individualized nanoeconomics. So the flip side is that same data can be used for very nefarious reasons, too. So let's, let's look at the good case scenario for a moment. Let's say I'm a business and I want to, you know, I want to do that. That's exactly what I want to do for my business. What's stopping me? When you're working with companies that are beginning to really grapple with how they can use big data, what are they getting right? What are they getting wrong? The first thing that they get wrong is they don't thoroughly understand and triage how they create value and how they measure value creation effectiveness. Starts there. It's you. I, one of my favorite stories is having a client walk up to me and say, hey, Schmars, I got this data set. Tell me what's valuable in it. And of course, my reply back to them is, well, what's valuable to you? What's How do you define value? So what organizations struggle with, I think, is they, they want to jump into the data right away. You know, data data management, data economics, all, it doesn't start with data, right? It starts with value. There was a great study done by Tom Davenport and Randy Bean that was looking at companies that are trying to become data-driven. And shockingly, what they found out is over the past three years, the number of companies that are trying to become data-driven has declined substantially in some cases. You don't want to be data-driven. Who gives a crap about data? You want to be value-driven. And so if we can refocus this conversation on value, then all this money you spent to, to capture data, to store it, to back it up, all this plethora of tools you've got, it's like giving everybody a bunch of hammers without any blueprints. Just start knocking nails into shit. I mean, come on, right? So we lack that blueprint up front around how we create value. And when, when organizations do that, it's like it's printing money. Their eyes open. They start to see. It's like they, they couldn't see before. They had shades on their eyes. You just pull one and go, wow, this is actually pretty easy. Because now I know what I need to do, and I know what I don't need to do. So here comes those frameworks. And that is almost as much, that's almost more powerful, what we don't need to do, what we don't need to keep. All right. What else is it? You know, let's say I'm, I'm getting me some, I bought me some data scientists. So oh. I'm excited. I'm starting to figure out what value chain Strike is. Strike one. Some data scientists. Strike one. <laughs> Talk to me about why. Don't start with data scientists. You, you're going to need data scientists. But if you really want to be effective as an organization, driving value to your customers and your stakeholders or your constituents, the data scientists are important, but the people who are going to uncover those, those variables and metrics that might be better predictors of performance, the whole feature engineering component, the people who really understand what drives the business aren't your data scientists. It's your frontline people. It's the front line of people who are engaging with your customers and your partners. It's the front line of people who are running the operations, driving the trucks, running the theme parks, whatever. It's the front line. And, and the starting point has to be how do you empower those people and bring them 
into this ideation, data science, and visioning process. So when you empower the front lines and create a process that brings them into this area of where I'm trying to use data and analytics to drive value, now you have a group of people who have intuition about what happens out in the field with customers and operations, with data scientists who know how to codify that. Now you've created this really powerful lock, right? It isn't just a data science team trying to grab stuff. You've got the people who really know what's going on and you latch them with the data scientists and data engineers. And now you create things that are, that are not only more effective, but are more relevant and will actually get used by the front lines because it was their idea in the first place. That's, that's the whole premise behind one of my favorite methodologies, which is the art of thinking like a data scientist. How do you bring everybody into the process? It isn't just the data scientist. I kept hearing you when you were talking about this. It's a process. It's it's a process. We do this. It goes on. I'm not hearing a nice, tidy little project. Wow. That's a good observation. It's, it's, it's not. What we have found is as organizations are moving through that data management journey from business need to business outcome, it's a process they follow. It starts as a project, but it eventually evolves into a product. If they're successful as they go through this process, and of course, as they go through that journey, they're learning that certain things don't work. They're, you know, they're, they're failing, failing often, restarting back, coming back. But at a certain point, there's an inflection point. They realize we've got something. This model really works. It is more effective. Now we got to turn that exploration project into a continuous learning and adapting product. We got to basically build a product that integrates AI and ML that can continuously learn and adapt. So you're right. There is a project aspect at the front, but it's only in support of what happens in the early part of that journey. And eventually what we see is customers realizing when they finally have something they know is valuable, turning that process or that project into a product. Does that make sense? Okay. So let me reflect that back to you because the things that I'm hearing that we I'm that I'm not sometimes hearing in in tech businesses or in businesses trying to use tech and big data, exploration project leading to a product, but you were most often talking about processes and journeys. All right. And and I think that's a powerful point. So it is not we bring in and sprinkle a data scientist across something. This is a changing way of thinking on both data scientists and others in the team that that journey will become products, but it's much more than just a program or a product. This is you, you, you use frequently that idea of journey or process. And the, Debbie, you nailed it. You're spot on. And here's the other key aspect of this. Your product's never done, but your journey's never done. If you are building products and a culture, not just not just products, but a culture of continuous learning and adapting so that every customer interaction, every operational interaction, transaction is an opportunity to learn more. Because we are now in the age where the economies of learning are more powerful than the economies of scale. So that journey doesn't start and stop. It basically keeps cycling. And, you, and you're, as an organization, your ability to accelerate that, that economies of learning process is what's going to distinguish winners from losers. And this is what I'm hearing again and again from guests on the show. This shifting away from just products and projects, whatever they're working on. It's around the people and the learning. And, and to start thinking about training, not training, but learning. And seeing that as an investment, not a cost. 
and the benefits that are coming from I've not used that. I'm going to quote you again and again on that, on the economies of learning, not just scale, I think is, is really, really powerful in that respect. Right. Okay. So big data, you fixed that for me. Thank you very much. I'll put that on. We've got that sorted. You, you mentioned that you're writing another book. All right. So why, what's, what's led to this one and, and what's boiling away in your head now? It's, it's funny, Debbie, that each of my books have had something that's really motivated me, usually through frustration. So this, this book really is an attempt to try to open the doors to everybody about the power of data science. So I'm thinking, how do we convert everybody into citizens of data science, not citizen data scientists? I don't need to turn everybody into data scientists. I need to have people understand what can data science do as a citizen? How do I do that? And underpinning the citizens, the citizen of data science is a desperate need around data and AI ethics. We need to mm-hmm. have a cultural awareness and transformation. So I have a uh, AI and data literacy educational framework. There's five stages in it, I think, when I get done with it, that really are, these are the areas when we start talking about data and AI literacy. We need to make sure we're covering all these areas. And so, you know, you need to understand what data, what, how your personal data is being captured and used to influence you. You need to understand some of the basics of, of analytics. You need to understand how we make predictions and how we apply predictions, how we need to apply critical thinking. We need to understand how we build models. We need to understand, we need to understand the basics of ethics. And so one of the things I'm working on right now is how do we codify ethics? Because if I can't codify it, then I'm going to have a hard time putting it into my AI utility function, which means my AI models aren't going to have an ethical foundation. So I actually believe, and I got a series of blogs I'm testing with this, that you can actually create the ethics, the economics of ethics. You can actually apply economic concepts to measure ethics. I've tested with a few people, a few customers. It needs work, but it's a it's a step in the right direction because if we don't figure out how to codify it and work it into our systems, then it is the difference between having Terminators, right, who are out wiping out humans, or having a Yoda on our shoulder whispering good advice in our ears about, you don't want to do that. You might want to do this instead. So my motivation is, you know, given where I am in my career, this may be my last hurrah. Let's make this a book that's available for anybody. I'm not talking about executives. I'm talking about not just college students, but high school students, maybe even middle schoolers who can understand that in this new world, here's how I need to think about these things and understand where and how my data is being used and how do I'm, how can I be aware so I'm making more informed decisions in an imperfect world. You know, we were talking about shiny things in tech and you're seeing people and you're seeing research coming out, seeing that, you know, there's... There's really people falling into these two camps. You one that AI is the great thing that's going to fix everything. And then there's the other, as you say, the Terminator. AI is the end of everything. And those are quite passive ways of viewing it. And a lot of times when we're talking about AI and data ethics, we are often talking about bringing in someone to save us or protect us or, or to stop things. But there is an element at the individual level and at the business level that we we need to see that this is not a passive process. This is something in progress that we shape. Debbie, I love that. Ethics is not a passive activity. It's a proactive activity. And I like to, when, when people say, well, tell me the difference. I say, remember the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan is, is an example of the difference between do no harm, which is passive 
ethics and do good, which is proactive ethics, right? And so I won't bore you with the story. We all know it. If you haven't, you should pick up the Bible and read the parable of the Good Samaritan. We need to become the Samaritan, right? We don't need to be the other people who left the stranger on the on the side of the road bleeding and didn't do anything because they weren't going to do any harm. Right? They did no harm. No, that's passive. We need to be proactive with our ethics. And that means that people need to be brought into the process. They they can't wait for somebody on a you know, on a white horse to come in and save the day. The you know the shiny knight isn't going to save them, and the government isn't going to save you either, right? By, by the time the government reacts to this thing, we're already going to have terminators knocking on our doors, delivering packages <laughs> on one hand, and God knows what the other hand, right? So we as as humans as humans need to be understand this the importance of proactive ethics and how we need to be taking charge of that. Everybody, it isn't just the, the elitist at the top. It isn't, it's got to be everybody involved in this process, which is why maybe my most interesting chapter in my book is a chapter about empowerment. How do we empower everybody in the organization to help get this thing done? So how can I do that, Bill? I, if, if I'm in tech, so think about our audience, we're in there. I, I might own a company, I might be a CIO, a CTO. How do I start boiling ethics into what I'm building, what I'm doing with my services, my products, etc.? What What should I be asking or doing today? John Smale, who used to be CEO at Procter & Gamble, used to always say, you are what you measure and you measure what you reward. At first, I didn't understand that. And I thought, wow, that's really powerful. People always say, well, you are what you measure, right? If you measure things, if you measure things, you can optimize them, right? If you can measure, you can predict, you can optimize. But he went one step further you, in that you measure what you reward, which is really his way of saying that the only things that are really important are the things I'm paying you to do. So if, if you're an organization and you're only, you're, your paycheck is entirely built on selling products to customers, then that's what I say is important. And anything else I say about customer service and cust- is BS, right? So if you are an organization and really believe that ethics is important, you better find a way to work it into your compensation. You better figure out what are the metrics around which that, right? So, you know, customer satisfaction, employee satisfaction, um, environmentalism, society, diversity, all, all these other variables. And so don't tell me as a, as a company you, you care about diversity, but no one gets paid on it because that's BS then, right? So you are what you measure but you measure what you reward. So my advice is organizations need to think more holistically around the KPIs and metrics around which they're going to measure their value creation effectiveness. And guess what that does? That brings us right back to the concept of economics. Here we go again. Right back to it, baby. All roads lead to economics. And so that's what I would say to organization. And I've got a process. The, the thinking like a, met, like a data science methodology, the first step in the process is a very labored process to make sure as an organization you've thought through from the perspective of all your different stakeholders and constituents, how do we, how do we measure value? How do we know we're actually creating value for everybody that's involved in our ecosystem? Hard. And I, and I think within that, isn't it also, because I think if we are going to build in the data ethics, measuring our value, but it's also recognizing our cost, impact, negative aspects. And that is a scary thing for companies to begin grappling with. What is the cost when things go wrong? What is the human cost? What, are the, what is the impact on the environment and those sorts of things? So measuring value, but measuring I guess I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm getting the right word, but the cost to other things, those quote-unquote intangibles. 
you're, you're, you're hitting on a key point, Debbie, is when we start thinking about making these kind of decisions, we need to go through the second and third level and understanding what might be the unintended consequences. Really to go through a process to say, okay, we're going to do this. Now, we, our government is great at making all kinds of policies without ever thinking through the second and third level ramifications of this. Well, we did this. The, the policies were made with the best of intentions, but they didn't think through about, well, what happens if this happens? One of the exercises we go through in our workshop is, what are the ramifications and costs of failure? We're going to do this project. What does it mean if you fail? Right? How do you know if you fail and what are the costs? Right? Unemployment, people being laid off, you know, customers maybe dying from the product. Who knows? Right? There's, but you need to think through these unintended consequences so you can really understand, here we're going to get techie in a second, the cost of the false positives and the false negatives. If I'm dependent upon a data science team who's going to build a model and they're going to measure the effectiveness of that model based on the cost of the false positives and false negatives, the data science team does not, it's not their responsibility to figure out the cost of the false positives and false negatives. It's the responsibility of the organization to think through what are the costs of the false positives and false negatives. And it gets very hairy. For example, using AI to make hiring decisions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Think about a false positive. False positive in hiring is hiring somebody you thought was going to work out and they didn't work out. You had to let them go, right? Your models, your AI models need to learn what a false positive is to, so we can become better at that. And the good news on a false positive in that example is we have all the performance data. We know, you know, what they came in. We know what failed. So we got that data. That's great. Perfect. Yeah. I can, my models can learn. So I want to build models that continuously learn and adapt. But here's the gotcha, the false negative. What are the person you didn't hire that you should have? Yeah, it's easy to say, oh, we can't track that. Bullshit. Yes, you can. Yep, you can. You could follow that person on LinkedIn. You could call them and do surveys. You could follow. You could follow up because your model, if it's not also instrumenting for the false negatives, isn't going to continuously learn and adapt. So it's an important conversation to think through these unintended consequences and the results it has on the impact of the false positive and false negatives, if we truly want to build AI models that are unbiased and help us to continuously grow and prosper. Listen, Bill, I I think we're going to have to get you back another time. I want to definitely hear when the book comes out. Um, You've covered so much. You've left us with so much on, on thinking about on the data, thinking about AI. I know how busy you are. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Debbie. It was a great, fun conversation really really enjoyed it and we'll we'll look out and we'll be aiming to build our yodas not our terminators that's that's part of what we'll be resolving to do we'd love to get your comments your thoughts on what you've heard today and you can share them with us at fox.agency xtech if you'd like to appear as a guest on the show don't waste a moment we'd love to hear from you email us now at xtech at fox.agency The people that make this show possible are Zoe Woodward, our executive producer, Hannah Teasdale, our podcast producer, and our whole team of tech experts at Fox Agency. I'm Debbie Forster, and you've been listening to X-Tech. Keep exploring the world of tech. Subscribe to our podcast and never miss an episode. To discover more opportunities for global B2B tech brands, visit fox.agency today.